2: For just
4: being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
1: Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we are talking about oysters. Ah, shucks.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> oh, right away. <laughs> and there's so much to talk about, so we're going to dive right in. So, an article I read on NPR called Oysters, the sea's version of fine wine. Hmm. And that's partially because the flavor of them is kind of determined by the water they're in, and
0: it's called mirar. Wow. Like terrar for wine, but with water and oysters. Huh. Yeah, the the flavors that you get from oysters come from the, the salts and minerals in the water where they grow and from what they eat. But oysters... What are they? I don't know. Why don't you tell me? I'm gonna. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, oysters are a bivalve. Uh, that means two-shelled mollusk, uh, and they live in shallow salt water. They are related to the oysters that make pearls that are used in jewelry and other decorations, and food oysters... Can make pearls, but, but they're two, they're two different species. I see. Mm-hmm. And oysters are filter feeders. That means that they suck in water and strain out like plankton and algae and bacteria and, and wee particles of plant and animal matter for consumption. They grow their shells by taking in calcium carbonate from the water around them and kind of forming it up into microstructures that they add layers to over time. Uh, calcium carbonate particles get into water when certain types of rock or old oyster shells erode. Those shells, a.k.a. valves, the bi-valve, bi-shell thing, yeah, Uh the, the shell where the oyster sits is called the left valve. I don't know why. Huh, huh. that's, It is. Um, it's the longer and rounder of the two. And the right valve, in contrast, is shorter and flatter and acts sort of like a lid. Um, they're hinged with a ligament. And the oyster can keep its shell closed with, with a adductor muscle, which, which is a really strong little muscle. It's like their one single muscle that they've got, basically, uh, for, for stuff other than like pumping their blood, which is an important thing to do as well, I suppose. Um, but yeah, uh, this, this adductor muscle. Um, if you've ever seen an oyster in its shell, the adductor muscle is the, is the tough circular bit that's more firm attached to the shell and the rest of the oyster. Oh yes yeah
1: I mean I've eaten many an oyster in my day so I know exactly what you're talking about
0: uh-huh um oh uh well while we're here um oysters are basically still alive when the when we eat them raw or when we start cooking them uh go ahead and take a second to feel bad about that if you weren't aware. I know I did. That's heavy stuff. Because I also have eaten a lot of oysters in my time, and suddenly the walrus and the carpenter, oh, I know, is just it, it's thrown into a whole new horrific light. It was already bad. I know, and right? I know. But this is like the gritty DC reboot, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you know that they're still alive. But okay, um, the reason that we do this is not that humans are terrible monsters. Hmm. Um, well, we might be, but not about this. Uh, it's is that oysters can harbor some really pretty nasty bacteria after they die, so you want to eat them as fresh as possible, which in this case means as close to living as possible. And I mention this here because you can tell a healthy live oyster from a sick or a dead one because that adductor muscle stops working and their shell will crack open all on its own. Huh. If it makes you feel any better, they don't have like a central nervous system or anything like that. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess. I guess a tiny bit. Oh, yeah. uh, they're, they're real tasty, though. But so, um, in order for oysters to grow to a point where you can eat them and feel bad about it later, first a, an adult oyster has to reproduce by sending their their sperm or their eggs out into the water to find each other. Oh, romantic! Eh, is it? No, no, not at all. Um, and then the wee baby oyster larvae that that result from from those. Watery unions, um, spend a few weeks swimming around and eating stuff, um, which seems like a pretty good life. Uh, but eventually the weight of their developing shell makes them sink down to the sea floor. Oh. Upon which they, they kind of find a place to settle down. Um, meanwhile, they've grown a foot to help them crawl to a good spot, which they do. Um, and, and, and a good spot is someplace that's hard and solid with a good water current running across it. And then they anchor to that, reabsorb their foot. <laughs> And, and move into and move into their kind of teenage stage, uh, whereupon they are called spats. Since they have different organs at all of these different stages, oysters' growth to maturity is considered a metamorphosis, like like a butterfly in reverse.
1: Sure. Yeah. I have to say, I was not expecting the phrase "reabsorb their foot." <laughs>
0: It's a good one. It
1: is. It yeah. is. Uh,
0: at this point, they take another three or four years to reach maturity. They're considered tastiest when they're eaten before the age of five, specifically right before winter uh, when they've stored up some fat for the cold months, so like October, September kind of kind of area. Um, but they can live up to 30 to 50 years in the wild. Wow. Yeah. Stuff, man, I – This this is an episode where I learned a lot and I'm really excited about most of it in slightly horrifying ways. So all of this definitely happens on its own in nature. And you can harvest wild oysters depending on the laws in your area and whether or not you have a hammer that you feel like going out into the water and, you know, pounding off some oysters with. Right. But you can also farm them. And oyster farmers all work a little bit differently depending on their local conditions. But, but generally the process is, uh, you know, you, you select a few oysters with good-looking shells as breeders, set up tanks that are ideal for spawning, move the resulting dust-sized, like dust-particle-sized larva into hatchery tanks. Then in a couple weeks, move the pepper flake-sized babies into these screened-in boxes in open water called upwellers. Then move the spat-ready quarter-inch kiddos into nursery cages, and then finally, when when uh, when the little buggers are a couple inches long, you just scatter them free range a little bit out from the shoreline and uh, let them let them settle in. And, and moving them around like this at all of their different growth stages lets you control the, the temperature, the salinity, the flow of water, and exposure to, to all kinds of different nutrients at their various stages of growth. It, it also encourages them to develop the ideal shell shape which is that the left valve should be should be deep and, and very rounded to allow for a good bodily growth. And, and also these methods make it easier to harvest the oysters later. they're not going to be as firmly attached to the uh, bottom of the of the water surface or cool. the bottom of the Stuff that the water is on top of. A wild oysters, by the way, usually root themselves to the shells of other oysters because that's a really easy way to get calcium carbonate out of the water. Uh, over time, this winds up creating these vast reefs of oyster shells that are really great for the environment. They, they provide structures for other aquatic critters to, to live in and around. Uh, they filter and clarify the water, like one to eight gallons of water per hour per oyster. Wow. Yeah. Um, as they, they suck it in to, you know, breathe and find food. And, uh, they even prevent shoreline erosion by acting as wave breakers. So giant reefs of oysters. If you've never seen an image of this, go st- stop what you're doing. I mean, unless you're like driving or something. Yeah. Don't do that. Go, go look it up and then come back. Yes. It's pretty incredible. I feel like we've become a marine biology podcast all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's okay. Br- bring us back to to bring some back. to some kind of financial number. Okay,
1: here we go. In 1996, the U.S. produced an estimated 40.4 million pounds of oyster meat, with Louisiana being the largest producer. That same year, the U.S. oyster industry made something like 101.6 million a year. Hoof. Yeah. Um, and in the U.S., we ate about 2.5 billion oysters in 2015. Oh, my goodness. And 85% of those came from the Atlantic coast. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. So that's kind of the state of where we are and what oysters are. So let's look at how we got here. But first,
0: let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion. So buy Pronamel
1: Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com.
2: Let's hit it! Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a wave. Surfing! Give me a city tour. The trolley! Give me animals. The zoo! Give me some sea life. Give me museums. museum. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san Diego.org, Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
3: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber live like a gigone there. Available wherever you'll get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit com slash hypergig for details.
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes. Oh, and I wanted to mention before we get, uh, deep into this history here that, uh, m- most of, most of our, our research was based in European and American, uh, uh, culture and, and history of oysters. Because that's where we live and, uh, that's what we were able to find. Uh, perhaps in the future we'll have an t- opportunity to, uh, to go into some of the history from the, the Asian side of things, the Eastern side of things. But, but for now, let's hear mostly about the West. So, 18th century satirist
1: Jonathan Swift wrote, He was a bold man that first ate an oyster. True. But actually, according to FoodTimeline.org, people have been eating oysters since the dawn of humanity forwards. That's a quote. Wow. Food historians think this is because oysters are relatively easy to collect and preserve. They're versatile. And they're nourishing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the fact that you could eat them raw was a big selling point in the earliest days of eating things as well. Yeah. Yeah. And also you could use the shells for spoons. So oh, pr- practical. Yeah. yeah. Good tools. Mm-hmm. We can't pin down exactly when ancient humans first started cultivating oysters. But in 2007, a group of scientists found 174,000-year-old evidence of humans enjoying shellfish dinners in South Africa. What? Shellfish is such a fun word to say. Shellfish. Shellfish. Archaeologists have discovered ancient middens, and these are like big shell heaps, dating back to 2000 BCE along the coast of Japan. And 10,000-year-old middens have been found along Australia's coastline. Oh, wow. Yeah. Middens dating back to 1,000 years can be found along the east and west coast of North America. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and going back 2,000 years, we have evidence of the Romans, who were like huge oyster fans. Oh, collect- big yeah. into it. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Collecting oyster seed growths near the mouth of the Adriatic Sea and bringing them back to Italy for growth. They did this by um, moving tiny little oysters with twigs and placing them somewhere calmer with higher salinity. And this resulted in a fatter, tastier end product. And the Romans weren't the only ones doing this either. The Japanese used bamboo to do the same thing, and the Greeks used pieces of pottery.
0: Uh, side note here about the Greeks and oysters. The the Greeks used oyster shells in part of their democratic process for, for, for a little while in ancient Athens, um, circa 480 BCE. If, if there's, like, someone that you thought was really detrimental to society hanging out, sure. you could write their name on, on a flat piece of oyster shell called an ostracon. And if that person's name turned up often enough on these ostracons, then then they'd be kicked out of town for 10 years. 10 years? 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Be, be nice to your fellow neighbors. Yes. Um, this is where we get the word ostracized from. Oh, that's so great. Uh, eventually, they switched from shells to bits of pottery for ease of use, but the name stuck. I love it.
1: <laughs> They're so useful, these oyster shells. <laughs> they really are. Uh the Romans, getting back to them, they imported oysters from all over the Mediterranean and the European coast, wherever they could find them really. They, they just were so in love. Um, and there's evidence of the Romans importing British oysters from Kent, which means they must have been preserving or brining them so that they'd survive the journey.
0: Yeah. I think pickled oysters were a really big thing for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I've never had one pickled.
1: I haven't either. Uh, it's also probably important to note that these, they were eating um much thinner, the oysters they were eating were much thinner than the ones we know now, just because uh they didn't have all the, they didn't have all the knowledge of the techniques of how to get them to be so plump and fat. Yeah. Yes. Anyway.
0: It was around this time that writers like Pliny, our good buddy, and the poet Ausonios wrote just tons and tons about different oysters from different regions, comparing and contrasting their, their qualities and their flavors and it was also aroundish this time that the whole oysters are an aphrodisiac
1: thing popped up in greek mythology the goddess of love aphrodite sprung out of an oyster shell mm-hmm. and moments later gave birth to eros oh that's thus, startling i know Ugh. moments thus the word aphrodisiac oh okay yeah. huh. and people believed it too casanova famous 18th century lover mover shaker allegedly would eat around 50 for breakfast 50 Oof. oysters Uh, Talk about the breakfast of champions, (laughs) and we're going to talk about more of the actual science of that. Or lack thereof. Yeah. The aphrodisiac thing, not the goddess of love thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, later. Yes. By the time of their heyday in Roman civilization, you showed off just how much money you had by stuffing as many oysters in your face (laughs) as quickly as possible. This was especially the case for the inland elite since the cost of transport oh. drove up the cost of oysters. Oh, I see. Yeah, but in places close to water like London, oysters were plentiful, very popular, and on the whole, inexpensive. Hmm. Yes. To prevent spoilage, oysters were often fried and enjoyed immediately after harvest.
0: Oh, that sounds so good. I'm so glad that people have been frying them forever, too. That's That's terrific. I know.
1: Roman entrepreneur Sergius Orata looked to profit off of his countryman's love of oysters, and he did so by making local oyster beds that were fed into by these channels and dams he created so he could control the flow of seawater. And he then touted his water source as home to the tastiest oysters. Folks were blown away by this. like people came to study it. Uh, and then he went on to invent heated swimming pools. So huh. yeah, we have this fellow and oysters to thank for that. Oh
0: my goodness! Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. That that's one of the that's basically the first time in in uh, in Western civilization anyway that we have solid record of someone really doing the oyster farming thing and doing it successfully.
1: Right. The French were also in on this oyster game, and their coastline boasted many natural oyster beds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By the time of the Roman occupation in 4th century CE poet uh his description of the technical aspect of oyster farming in France, which is not exactly what we have today, but similar, was so detailed and advanced, for the time at least, that it most likely had been practiced for quite a while. And like, like we kind of mentioned earlier, oyster shells had... A lot of uses because they have lime. They were ground up and used in cement or as fertilizer. Oh, yeah. Some of the limestone used to build towns along the south coast of France existed thanks to millennia of oyster populations fossilizing. Mm -hmm. And jumping way ahead, in Australia around about the 1860s, the use of oyster shells and cement production led to a major depletion of the oyster beds so that the government had to step in and set up cultivation practices based off what the French were doing.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Oysters enjoyed this huge popularity in Paris during the 1600s. Uh, there may have been over 2,000 oyster sellers there during the reign of Louis XIV. Uh, as they are today, folks ate oysters either cooked or raw, and when eaten raw, usually with a bit of lemon juice or vinegar. Mm. However, uh, Alexandre Dumas, uh, a famous author of uh, Count of Monte Cristo and other other things, uh, wrote that, quote, "...the true connoisseurs swallow them without lemon, vinegar, pepper, or anything else."
1: Just straight up. Straight up.
0: Uh, recipes for cooked oysters around that time in France included oyster stews and fritters and, uh, broth made by not quite boiling oysters to be used in basically anything and or everything, which sounds delicious. Um, our buddy Francois-Pierre Lavarenne wrote in his book Le Cuisinier Francois that you should open up your oysters and save the nicest to be eaten raw and then take the rest, add, uh, butter, breadcrumbs, and a sprinkle of nutmeg and then roast them in their shells on an iron griddle. And now that I've read that, I really can't stop thinking about it. I want it so much. Oh, that sounds so good. Oh, um, There's a legend uh, that a steward to the uh, royal house of Condé, uh, a man by the name of Attel, was once in charge of feeding Louis XIV and his traveling party. And by traveling party, I mean like 5,000 people. And the pressure was so great that when a shipment of oysters from the coast failed to arrive on time, Vatel committed suicide by falling on his own sword rather than face the wrath of the bougie aristocracy. They were serious about their oysters, huh? Very, very
1: serious. Ooh, okay. Well, moving on to North America. <laughs> Before Columbus arrived, Columbus again! <laughs> Native American women harvested and prepared oysters, sometimes preserving them to last through the winter. And when the Dutch first colonized what was then New Amsterdam, what we know today as New York City, in the 1600s, they discovered just so many oyster beds. Oh, yeah. Some biologists estimate that over half of the world's oyster population may have once lived in New York Harbor, covering 22,000 acres. Oh, over half. And this meant that they were cheaper than pretty much all other livestock. And that meant that people ate a lot of them. Mm-hmm. You could get them from street vendors. The oyster shells were used to pave Pearl Street and the foundations of buildings. Um, to prevent over-harvesting, there were rules put in place about when and where you could harvest oysters. But at one point in the 18th century, the diet of the poor living in cities was pretty much just bread and oysters. Oof. The average New Yorker had two oyster-based meals a week. Wow. Mm-hmm. Alas, those regulations they put in place didn't work, and today they're pretty much extinct from New York Harbor, but there is a pretty uh, serious concerted effort to bring them back to boost the oyster population. Yeah.
0: Per- perhaps not as big as it once was. No. But. Yeah. But
1: to, <sighs> Yeah, revitalize it a bit. And New York is also thought to be where the first oysters were canned in 1819, and it is also, also most likely the birthplace of the oyster alcohol pairing. Ah, yeah, from New York taverns pairing oysters with booze spread, eventually arriving to New Orleans, which was home to much of America's absinthe. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the discovery of the absinthe oyster combo followed soon after.
0: Uh, and of course, that the French immigrants to New Orleans would have brought with them their their appreciation for oysters. Yes. Um In
1: Charles McKay's 1859 book, Life, Liberty in America, he wrote, The rich consume oysters and champagne. The poorer classes consume oysters and large beer. And that is one of the principal social differences between the two sections of the community. <laughs> <laughs> Which I kind of love. Yeah. But, I mean, today – it. We still, like, there's a restaurant in Decatur near Atlanta mm-hmm. that does oysters and absinthe and oysters and champagne, oysters and beer. Still do it.
0: I think I've had all of those combinations in yes, fact.
1: I, I believe I have as well. None of them are, none of them suck. No, they're all pretty, pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Oysters weren't just big in New York. The US went through something called the oyster craze in the mid to late 1800s. Oh yeah. During peak production from 1880 to 1910, the U.S. produced 160 million pounds a year. Oh, my goodness. More than all other countries put together. By the 19th century, these things called oyster saloons started popping up where you could indulge on some fresh oysters, like, real quick. And these might have been some of America's first restaurants, like, outside of inns. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they were marked by these big circular red and white signs. And you could get... uh it was a go-to lunch option for working men in coastal cities, but it was also frequented by politicians. Huh. New York City had 850 alone. Wow. And some even had curtain booths for women. Oh, wow. So the oh, ladies could so get some oysters. I know. <laughs> women in public. Oh, my goodness. Ooh, la, la. <laughs> you could get oysters pretty much any way you wanted. You could get them stewed, scalp, fried, in a pie and soup and patties. In the fall, and I love this, some people would mix some damp sea sand with some cornmeal in a corner in their cellar and bury oysters in there so they wouldn't run out in the winter. Oh. And they'd water this little oyster bed twice a week or so, like a plant. And (laughs) when you wanted some oysters, you just went digging in there. And they were called cellar oysters. They were popular in things like oyster pie or stew since they weren't as fresh. Uh And no host worth their salt would neglect to have these luscious bivalves, as they were called. And you could serve them around this time ultra-fancy oyster plates started Coming out oh, for wow. purchase. Yeah, uh,
0: the the mid 1800s is also where we get oyster crackers from. Um, oh. And no, they are not made with oysters. They were uh, they were served with oyster stews in New England, and you know they slightly resemble oysters with, with their kind of circular shape that consists of two rounded sides, top and bottom, that can crack apart from one another. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. This crazy demand for
1: oysters also resulted in the oyster wars, a series of violent skirmishes between oyster pirates and oyster men operating in the Chesapeake Bay and Potomac River from 1865 to 1959. What? That is pretty recent.
0: That's Almost a hundred
1: years of oyster piracy. I know. Also, oyster piracy. I know. There's so many exc- exclamation points in the outline. Well deserved. Yes. The oysters from this area they they grew to be up to a foot long. Wow. Yeah, they were very plentiful. Ships would sometimes run aground on them. Oh, my goodness. And records exist of them being enjoyed by John Smith, and they were a favorite of George Washington. Huh. As the early 1800s saw depletion of New England's oysters, boats from up north started coming further and further south looking for some oysters, and the locals didn't like that. Hmm. Both Virginia and Maryland passed laws that made oyster fishing illegal for non-residents. Baltimore became the hub of oyster canning and shipping. I think we've said before, just canning in general. Mm-hmm. Um, first with the oyster line, that's what it was called, to Ohio, and then expanding out so that Chesapeake Bay oysters could be enjoyed pretty much anywhere in the U.S. As technology developed, and it was discovered that if you steamed them, um, it sped up the shucking process. More and more were canned and shipped. 17 million bushels of Chesapeake oysters had been harvested by 1875, and by the production peak of the 1880s, 20 million bushels of Chesapeake oysters were being harvested a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hoof. And there were two main ways used to harvest oysters. By hand, using wooden, wooden tongs to lift the catch out of the water, or by dredging. Maryland only permitted dredging in deep waters, but, of course, the dredgers didn't always abide. Mm -hmm. And this sometimes resulted in gunfights. Oh. You know. Oyster gunfights. Absolutely. That seems like the best way to resolve the situation. Sure. Not helping things at all was the not-so-well-defined border between Maryland and Virginia. So Virginia oystermen would come into Maryland's waters looking for oysters, ah. yeah, thinking they had a claim to them. And Maryland oystermen were not cool with that. <laughs> things got so bad that in 1868, the Maryland Oyster Police Force was formed. What? An oyster Police Force. They only had one steamboat.
0: Oh. Yeah. Oh.
1: (laughs) For that whole area though. So they were, they were pretty limited in what they could accomplish. By the 1920s, oyster production in the area dropped to three million bushels a year, which is pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, and the discovery of a new oyster bed in the Potomac in the 1940s reignited. The Oyster Wars. Oh wow. Yeah. With Virginia Oyster Pirates and Dredgers called the Mosquito Fleet getting into chases and gunfights with the Oyster Police.
0: Well, why have I never seen a big action movie about this? I know. I mean, come
1: on, Hollywood, get on
0: it. Yeah. Like you could do special screenings in, in yes. places with oysters for dinner. It would be it would be such a hit. Get it together. Come on. Mm-hmm.
1: All of this came to a head in 1959 when Virginian Berkeley Muse, what a name, went dredging for some Maryland oysters, was spotted by the oyster police, and shot while attempting to flee. Oh, wow. He bled to death on his boat. Oh, And the two states involved passed some legislation that finally brought an end to the oyster wars. Ha huh. Yes. For further listening, our sister podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class, has a whole episode on this. Huh.
0: Uh, Meanwhile, over in Europe, there were other oyster troubles to contend with. Uh, Native oysters called flat or European oysters were susceptible to a lot of parasites and, and other species would become invasive, particularly Portuguese oysters, which had actually stowed away from India as barnacles on trading ships, you know, the, the Portuguese ships would arrive home and they would shuck the barnacles off, which were oysters. And then the oysters would just be like, Oh, this is chill. Just set up shop here. This is our new home. Yeah. Um, a series of, of laws and, uh, livestock diseases affected oyster populations of both types, though. And, and eventually a whole other species had to be imported from Japan in order to keep numbers up. Yeesh. And apart from, you know, the war, Oyster
1: producers in the U.S. (laughs) did suffer some other setbacks, the first being related to the pure food hysteria of the early 1900s. That's what it was called. People started to link outbreaks of typhoid and GI disorders to oysters. Mm -hmm. Newspapers ran sensationalist headlines and stories about this connection pretty frequently. So people started switching to more expensive beef. Ah. Huh. Yeah. And kind of side note, in 1907, oyster grower Henry C. Rowe formed the Oyster Growers and Dealers of North America to help better the oyster's image with little success. Oh. Wow. Oh. But this organization later renamed itself the Shellfish Institute of North America and is uh, one of America's oldest trade associations. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the pure food hysteria, uh, tougher oyster packing and handling rules were introduced in 1909, which increased operating cost. In 1924, several people, mostly in Chicago, got typhoid after eating oysters, and some of them died. Hmm. Um And the oyster demand dropped 50 to 80 percent. What? Yeah. It was called, quote, the greatest disaster which ever befell the industry. Oh, my goodness. Very dark times. For oysters. And speaking of, prohibition didn't help either, since alcohol and oysters go together like birds of a feather, and a lot of the places where oysters were enjoyed got shut down because they huh. had alcohol. Sure. Yeah. And then in the 1950s, a new disease called MSX decimated oyster beds in Delaware and Chesapeake Bay. We're talking 90 to 95% loss. Oh wow. Yeah. These problems persisted not quite on that scale. All the way up to the mid 1990s. Wow. Yeah. And another problem. <laughs> I just found this, uh, very surprising. Starfish are oyster predators. Yeah. They love an oyster. Yeah. Some fishermen use these things called oyster mops to collect starfish and drop them into a tub of boiling water to
0: kill them. No. Yeah.
1: That,
0: that's a, that's a very, Ultimate answer to that problem. Okay. Ugh. Starfish, by the way, are such good oyster predators. Uh, they uh, they produce a paralyzing agent that once they've pried open the oyster's shell with their with their thick meaty arms, they squirt this paralyzing agent in at the oyster so that it can't use its uh, its adductor muscle to close the shell up again. Ugh. And then they then they squirt their their stomach their their stomach out through their mouth and they digest the oyster in its shell.
1: I. I saw some videos of this on YouTube, and it was both horrifying and impressive. <laughs> As much of nature is. Absolutely. <laughs> in 1983, the EPA started a cleanup effort in Chesapeake Bay. That helped restore consumer confidence in oyster consumption safety.
0: Huh, okay. The program
1: is ongoing, um, but the new proposed budget would do away with it. Hmm. Virginia sold $16 million of oysters in 2015, and they have a Virginia oyster trail, like a wine trail. What? Yeah, oh, I want to do that so badly. Okay. All right, field trip. I want to do that so badly. Yeah. Another problem, the Gulf oyster industry took a huge hit in 2010 with the BP oil spill but it started to bounce back. In fact, the south traditionally has been unable or they have a difficult time selling their oysters because they grow in these really big clusters so you can't sell like individual oysters. Uh huh Yeah. Um and the adoption of aquacultures and hatcheries in the region has changed that and we're hopefully going to visit one of these. Yeah. But, uh, it's going to be pretty big for the southern oyster industry. Yeah. Um random fact. Murder point oysters are so named because one guy killed another guy in an oyster territory dispute where these oysters are farmed. I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> okay. okay, so much so much murder in this oyster I episode. No, who knew? Huh. Oh, well, that is oyster history?
0: Yeah. In the shell. Oh, something some kind of pun there. Yeah. So let's talk about some oyster science. But first, let's pause for another quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's
0: gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand
1: for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com.
2: Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. The Park. Give me a woo. Roller Coaster! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism and Marketing District Assessment Funds.
3: Today I'm gonna to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by a guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and hypergig for details.
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes. Okay. So, so science and health and whether oysters are an aphrodisiac. Yeah. Uh, first, nutrition. Oysters are high in protein, uh, good fats, iron, calcium, a few other vitamins and minerals, and they're really pretty good for you. Uh, they're, they're filling without being too heavy. Uh, eat more oysters. Yay. Okay. Uh, However, if you're immunocompromised or have a liver disease, you probably shouldn't eat them raw due to danger of infection with a few types of bacteria that can cause serious problems in humans. Um, They're in the same genus as a a cholera. Um, It's the Vibrio genus. Yes. Uh, Related to that, is it actually dangerous to eat oysters in month that don't contain the letter R in their name? I have never heard this
1: before, and now I'm seeing it all over. Oh, like just randomly. Yeah, it's probably because I've been researching oysters. That's, that could be. That's that could probably be it. absolutely what it is.
0: Yes. Oh, uh, th- it's an old saying, and there is a little bit of truth to it in the northern hemisphere, at any rate, um, because months without the letter R uh, are May, June, July, and August, uh, which are the height of summer, and these potentially dangerous vibrio bacteria thrive in warmer weather. So there is a slightly higher risk of infection when you eat raw oysters during the summer months, especially if they're from warmer areas like the Gulf of Mexico. But infection is pretty rare. According to the CDC, uh, vib- vibriosis causes about 80,000 illnesses and 100 deaths every year in the United States, which is nothing compared to, like, say, salmonella, which causes 1.2 million il- illnesses and 450 deaths every year. So don't be too scared, but do do use your best judgment. Yeah. Along the aphrodisiac lines, now that I've talked about the terrifying disease lines. Um, <laughs> so there, there's no evidence that oysters are an aphrodisiac. What? And I know you've heard this science news story from like a decade ago that said that there was ev- that there was evidence along those lines. Um, which was a case of poor science journalism. Oh no, that never happens. Never ever. No. Which means our jobs are done. Yay. We can all go home. Goodbye. No. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. So, so, so what happened in this particular case was there was an undergraduate study into the chemical makeup of mussels, which are, of course, related to oysters, um, where the researchers found this amino acid called D-aspartic. I think I'm saying that right. I'm going to move forward. Um, and that amino acid has been found to increase the levels of sex hormones in lab rats. But they did not test oysters. They did not test anything in humans. However, uh the funny thing about rumored aphrodisiacs is that they're really placebo compatible, which means that if you believe that they're going to work, it's basically a coin flip of a chance that they'll totally work. I feel like yeah, if you want something to work in that
1: situation, uh-huh. you're already kind of
0: you're right there. You're already kind of there. Yeah, so so much of so much of uh, arousal is is in your brain that yeah, if you if you're into it I mean, I mean, eat some oysters and have fun, oh yeah yeah, but the uh, science wise no oh, back to scary things okay. uh okay so so uh, so pollution. Oysters are bottom feeders in shallow areas, which means that they're usually right by an ocean uh, coastline, right along with any pollutants that dump out from local waterways or the groundwater. Plus, like lots of sea creatures, they can wind up storing harmful stuff in their bodies. And researchers have found traces of stuff like mercury, arsenic, and human medications in oysters. But but again, probably not enough to worry about unless you're either immunocompromised or eating, like, a lot of oysters. How much is a lot? Which I I I mean I mean if you binge on like a couple dozen every once in a while, I think you're fine. I've been known to get into some trouble at oyster fest. If you <laughs> if like Casanova you're eating like 50 every morning, then I might cut that out. Oh, I can't afford that. So yeah. no worries there. Oh, excellent. Well, good. <laughs> I'm going to be fine. Oh, oh, uh, uh, back back to back to sexuality though. Uh <laughs> well, oysters oysters' reproductive lives are really interesting. I mean, from from a human perspective anyway. I mean, for them it's, you know, normal yeah. everyday kind of stuff. Uh oysters change their sex at least once during their lifetimes. Oh, at least once. They're hermaphroditic. Uh they tend to be male and produce sperm early on in their lives. Um sperm production requires fewer resources and they're really busy bulking up their shells at that point. Mm-hmm. When they get a little bit older, they tend to switch to female sex and egg production. And they can switch back and forth depending on uh, the the, con- the conditions in their environment. So,
1: I love that you wrote bulking up the shell for the male oyster. <laughs> See <him> like <laughs> like lifted shell weights. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's pretty great. Okay, let's talk about some popular some popular oyster recipes. Oh yeah. So the first one I thought of is oysters Rockefeller, and this is supposedly, allegedly, New Orleans chef Jules Alciatore. I wanted to say it in an Italian way, but I, I looked up a video, and it's Alciatore, of Antoine's restaurant, um, supposedly lays claims to this recipe. Mm-hmm. And the story goes he created it in 1889. The original recipe is kind of a culinary secret. Oh. Yeah. But it involves baking oysters with parsley, shallots, Tabasco sauce, and butter.
0: And they're quite delicious if you've never had them prepared this way. Yes. I recommend it. Mm-hmm. Pigs in a blanket. What? That's yeah. A, that's a hot
1: dog wrapped in dough. That's what I thought, too. But apparently this used to refer to broiled oysters wrapped in bacon. Oh, my goodness. I know. Going all the way back to 1884. Uh, it also goes by the name Angels on a Horseback. And, yeah, we should try this. Yes. Soon. Another one. I've never heard of this. Oysters Kirkpatrick. Have you heard of this, Lauren? I have not. So this probably first appeared on a menu sometime in the 1920s at San Francisco's Palace Hotel. According to the hotel, it's broiled oysters topped with ketchup, bacon, and green peppers, sometimes with cheese. Huh. It it kept popping up in search results, so... I, uh, it, I mean, I believe it's delicious because it's made with oysters. The and- ketchup is kind of throwing me, and I love ketchup, but I would definitely... Give it a go.
0: I mean, it, it's got a little bit of a vinegar component, so I, that's, I suppose yeah, that that's, that's true. That's you true. Know,
1: like cocktail sauce-ish. Yeah,
0: sure. Okay. Um, there's the
1: Thanksgiving tradition of using oysters in stuffing in New England. Oh, a, which of course makes perfect sense. It does. I've never had this, but people still do it. Uh-huh. I hear, uh, it goes back pretty far too. The first written recipe appearing in a
0: 1685 cookbook out of London called The Accomplished Cook. Yeah, not, not with an ED on the end of accomplished, but a T rather, yep. <laughs> just for flavor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: It would make sense that it would make the journey to North America. And since oysters were so plentiful and popular in New England, it would make sense that they would be added to stuffing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd like to try that as well. Just things I want to try. Also, we can't end this episode without mentioning oyster vending machines. This is a thing. I, need this in my life. It exists, but it only exists in France oh. currently, and it's 24-7. What? Just, you know, whenever you have your oyster craving, there's a vending machine. They're kept refrigerated and restocked daily, and they're sold closed to prevent food poisoning. And they're actually pretty inexpensive for oysters. For oysters. <laughs> uh, they cost about $8 for a dozen.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a totally good price for an oyster. Yeah. So you have to shuck them yourself, like on the street?
1: Oh, that's true. What if? Because I imagine if you're going at 3 a.m., say you might be a little inebriated, possibly, and then you you get this, you get your oyster caving, you get your oyster out of the vending machine. hmm, There's possibility for injury there. Yeah, shucking oysters is not the easiest thing in the world.
0: I've never tried it. I've watched carefully while other people do it. Oh, it's. It's, it can be very difficult.
1: There's a, there's definitely a method to it. You want to go in right at the knuckle. But if there's alcohol
0: involved, it's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the thing. Like by the time anyone ever gets around to shucking an oyster around me, like. Yeah. I feel like my time for shucking has passed.
1: <laughs> yes. It's a limited, there's a small window when you should be doing it, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, and I wanted to mention that, uh, if you'd like to hear more about oysters, the, uh, the Gastropod podcast has a really great episode where they interview Rowan Jacobson, who's the author of The Essential Oyster. And, uh, I, I found it enlightening and you might too. Yes. It was very enlightening. Other things that we found enlightening were these pieces of listener mail. Yay. Yes. <laughs> um,
1: Florian wrote in response to our Butterbeer episode, your latest episode was about fictional food and it reminded me of my youth about 20 years ago when I was obsessed about bringing another fictional food into our world, Limbus, the elven bread from The Lord of the Rings. I read the passages describing it several times and went to town with different sorts of flowers, spices, and honeys. The results were always edible and sometimes even pleasant, but they never fully achieved to taste, quote, better than any man-made food. Or to be something that you would never grow tired of eating. Another fictional food I apparently created by accident... (laughs) when i was experimenting with old recipes for sailor's hardtack i ended up with something that must have closely resembled dwarven bread from sir terry pratchett's discworld universe it turned out almost as inedible as indestructible <laughs> and would have been deadly when flung in anger ah yes a lot of people have requested limbus bread yeah a lot of people so we
0: absolutely i guess i guess that's I guess that's the next fictional food. We will come back to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Samantha also, uh, also wrote in after our episode about tofu and said, you mentioned how the Chinese word for luck is similar to tofu. In Japan, their phrase kitokatsu, uh, which means you will surely win, sounds very similar to Kit Kat. Students like to use them as good luck charms before a test or something. As a result, there are Kit Kats everywhere and in unusual flavors too. Some flavors my husband and I found in Japan were matcha, green tea, cherry blossom, wasabi, strawberry cheesecake, and caramel apple. Which is so fabulous. I, I've had, I've had the, the, the matcha ones. Um, I never knew that that was why. Yeah. And they have a space for messages on the back that you write. Yeah. Like, good luck. Um, I, like, I, like I, I always thought that it was curious that, that the Japanese had such a thing for Kit Kat bars, but mm-hmm. they have, croissants filled with, like, Kit Kat feel- filling.
1: What? I know. I am going, I think I said, I'm going to Japan soon, and I love Kit Kats. Like, there are three candies that I just love, and I'm not that big in candy, but there are three, and Kit Kat is one of them, so I'm definitely going to get a croissant and some of these flavors. Ah, uh, Yeah, it's going to be yeah, great. Yeah,
0: bring, bring some back. I will. I will. Okay. Yes. Alright. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for, for listening. Thank you to Florian and Samantha for writing in. Uh, if you would like to write us, you can do so as well. Yes. Our email is
1: foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. Uh,
0: we are also on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Google foodstuff and those things. You'll, you'll find us. I have faith in you. Oh, and further thanks to our amazing and very patient sound engineer, Alexander Williams, whose name I will remember one of these weeks without having to pause and ask him what it is. I think we should just change his last name every episode. If you have any ideas, uh, dear listeners, for for new names for our audio producer, Alex, then write it and let us know. Uh, We hope that we'll hear from you, and uh, we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair
1: anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com.
2: Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! (laughs) Give me museums! Falco Park! Give me a woo! coaster! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san Diego.org, Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and Pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
4: Zumo Play.